Jonah chapter 1. We're going to cover verse 17 and uh, through chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And the title of the message tonight is From Deliverance to Devotion. From Deliverance to Devotion. So let's pick up where we left off last time together in verse 17 of chapter 1. And it says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The two words in verse 17, the Lord should settle any question about the truth of this story of Jonah being swallowed by the great fish. And, you know, as I was going along and just thinking about this situation, you know, you, you look at it and you, and you, you think about it, well, at least I was, and I go, it, it, and it, it sounds so much like a, a cartoon. And, you know, there are stories made out of it. You know, man being swallowed by a big fish and, and all of that. And, you know, it, it does sound like, like a, a child's story. And to believe it in the world, I can understand the world thinking, you, you must really be dumb. You know, to believe a story like that. To just simply believe that this story is true and all that the, the, the book of Jonah says, what happened to Jonah, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's like a kid's story. And then I heard God's voice say, you know, unless you have the faith of a child... You'll never see the kingdom of God. And that's with everything that God says to us, you know. We are to have faith like a child. When our kids were little, remember, they believed everything that we told them. Why? Because we were their parents. They trusted us. They believed us. Why? Because they knew that, that we loved them and that we would do them no harm. And it's the same with our Heavenly Father. He loves us, and He's not going to do us any harm. And He all, you know... His main concern for us is, is, is in his heart. You know, he loves us and he cares for us. So these two words, the Lord, should settle any question about the truth of the story of Jonah and the great fish. Because, as it says in Luke one thirty seven, with God, nothing will be impossible. And when God is involved, anything is possible. When you go to the book of Genesis, the very first verse of chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. If you can believe those four words in the first verse of the Bible, then believing the rest of the Bible shouldn't be a problem. But that's exactly what unbelief does not want you to do. Unbelief wants you to explain everything apart from God. And today's God is science. If science can't explain it, it, it's it's no good. You can't believe it. Jesus said in John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. When Christians don't fellowship with Christ through the word of God and prayer, they'll lose their power. And their ability to live an exemplary Christian life and to serve him. And that's kind of what we saw with Paul this morning in our lesson. He was giving examples of the Christian life. And when you do, 
All right, when you do lose or try to explain things apart from God, you can only expect stupidity as a result. And look at the things they're trying to put down our throats today. The stupidity of the wisdom of man and trying to make us believe it. And if we don't, we're bigots, we're haters, we're all kinds of things. But that's what happens when you try to explain things apart from God. I mean, again, when I say that you can only expect stupidity to be the result, it's like it's explaining creation without God. Look at all the stories. You know, some slimy little creature crawled out of some primordial ooze. It crawled across a rock, scraped its underside, a callus started, and from that callus a leg grew, and from that and here's how here's where we are today. We're the result of that little critter, you know, getting a callus on the underside, and, and here we are today. I mean, there's no words to explain that stupidity. Evolution, the perfect example of disbelief. But our text here involves God, the Lord. It said in verse 17 of chapter 1, the Lord. So this takes away all the problems that somebody might have with Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and kept alive for three days and three nights. And that shows that disbelief isn't justified at all. Verse 17 says, The Lord had prepared the fish to swallow Jonah. And the word prepared there in verse 17 is translated from a word that literally means to allot or assign. So God called for this great fish to serve him. God is the one who called this fish to take care of Jonah. And, and, and I think it, it was something like when, when the, the, the time that, that the animals were called to go to the ark two by two. Why would they just automatically all start heading towards the ark? I, I believe that God put this instinct or this call in them to go to the ark. Because God had a purpose. And there's no question that God had to make some major modifications in this special fish that God prepared for Jonah. Because no fish has ever been found that could normally do for Jonah what this special fish had to do. And one of the problems is the existence of a fish big enough to swallow a man. Because the digestive juices would make it impossible for Jonah's body to stay intact for three days and three nights. It would have dissolved him. Also, enough decent air to breathe to stay alive inside that great fish for three days and three nights. So the fish's stomach would have to be a lot different in many ways than any other fish's stomach. But God could take care of that problem very easily. Because, as it says in Genesis 1-7 and Genesis 1-20 and 22, God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. So God, notice, so God created sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind. God created the seas, and every sea creature. So it wouldn't be at all impossible because God is the creator of the universe for him to provide a a special fish 
to, take, to, to meet the needs of Jonah. He created the universe. He created everything on it, in it, and above it. This was a specially prepared fish provided just for Jonah with many special requirements that he needed to get himself back on track spiritually and back on land physically. Jonah obviously had some great needs that he had to have met, that had to be met when he was thrown off of that ship. If he was ever going to get to land, and if he was ever going to get to Nineveh and preach the message that God gave him that the people needed so desperately, you know, to be rescued from their sin, Jonah needed a way back, a way to get back to land. And he needed a place to spend some time with the Lord in prayer. So God knows that and God stepped in. And God provided everything that Jonah needed using this great fish to get him back to serving God. And when God sees the need, he can provide for his people in any way, he, you know, in miraculous ways. When we're surrounded by difficult circumstances, we often wonder if God can take care of us. When we can't see any visible ways possible. And when we begin to lose the vision of God, then we begin to say, hey, I, I, th- there's nothing that can be done. And so we end up limiting God because in our eyes, the circumstances are so great. Now, circumstances are the only things you will see when you get your eyes off of God. And if you look at God through your circumstances, man, he's going to seem small. And he's going to seem so far away. But if by faith you look at your circumstances through God, he will draw you very near and he will show you his greatness. And when God is doing the providing, man, he can do it any way he wants to. Any way he chooses to bring you what you need. Remember, God used birds, ravens, to bring food to Elijah. And God used another fish to bring a coin to Peter to pay his taxes. He used a donkey to speak to Balaam to give him some important truths that he needed to know. So it shows us that our needs aren't limited by our circumstances. Our needs are limited by what we think about our God's inability. What we think about the size of our God to meet our circumstances. Now, if we listen to the world, if we listen to skeptics and critics, and we listen to those who mock God's word and the abilities and God's abilities, we'll never discover the great ability of God. The way the critics talk about the scriptures will discourage our belief about God's ability to take care of us. This passage of scripture here should encourage us about the fact of God supplying our needs like he did for Jonah and Elijah and Peter. All down through the ages, he's, he's, he supplied our needs. Philippians 4.19, Paul said, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And that is because if God wondrously and miraculously provided for a, diso- a disobedient man, Think about what he'll do for a man that's dedicated to him. 
The last part of verse 17 says Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jesus referred to this verse in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus spoke of this as, a, as being a sign in Matthew 12, 39, which illustrated the miracle of his resurrection. The, the, Jonah being in the belly of the whale three days and three nights is a symbol of the miracle of Christ's resurrection who was in the earth three days and three nights. The one great miracle that would especially confirm Jesus' own ministry is the miracle of Jonah in the belly of the whale. And when Jesus referred to Jonah, he was dealing with a case of real stubborn disbelief. Because some of the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus in Matthew 12, 38, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, they had already seen many miracles that Jesus had done. So when they asked Jesus to give them a sign, they were really saying, we still don't believe you. Even though we've seen all of these signs that you have performed. And they're still asking for a sign. They're saying, we we still don't believe you. They didn't believe him. And yet insisted that Jesus give them more proof. They wanted more signs to back up what Jesus said to help them believe him. Now, Jesus doesn't put up with this kind of attitude. Jesus, you know, doesn't just do, you know, God doesn't do miracles just to, you know, like a magician to please the critics. He doesn't perform miracles as sort of a a sideshow. The word translated sign is also translated miracle in in the King James Version. So what the the, the scribes and the Pharisees were really asking for was actually more miracles. Hey, Jesus, do more miracles. And a lot of the crowds, when they followed Jesus, it wasn't to, to get what he was offering, salvation. They were going out of curiosity to get something, food, or, or to, to see miracles. And this crowd never asked him, notice, they never asked him for more of the word. They never asked him to preach more messages. But they did ask, hey, we want to see more miracles. That was a carnal request. It wasn't a spiritual one. The reason for the request was a lack of faith. They had seen plenty of miracles, but they still wouldn't believe. You know, the people around us, you know, the people that, that, that knew us in the world, they see one of the greatest miracles God performs, and it is changing a man, changing a woman. Becoming a new creation. You know, and, and I can remember when I, you know, when I worked back in the day and, and I got saved. And a lot of the guys there knew me and how I was. And, and I remember one guy when I was witnessing to him said, you can't turn, a, you, you, can't, you know, turn a, a cat into a dog. And that's what, he, that's what his thinking was. You know, it's all, it's all something other than a, a work of God. You know, but God can change a cat to a dog if he wants to. And, you know, so, but again, they don't understand. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they'd seen plenty of miracles, but they wouldn't believe. The request was simply criticism in disguise for Jesus not giving them enough evidence. But lack of evidence was not the problem here. It was lack of faith that was the problem. 
And instead of Jesus giving them more signs, he attacked their unbelief by saying this in Matthew 39, 40. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Notice, Jesus in the gospel is validating what happened to Jonah. The scribes and the Pharisees still didn't believe. That's the problem with disbelief. They, they still can't see the obvious. Disbelief can look at truth right in the eye and never see it. And that's a terrible affliction to have. A terrible thing that comes to the heart of the skeptic. I mean, what better testimony could there be to confirm our text than the fact that the Savior, the Messiah... The king of kings, Jesus confirmed the truthfulness of this passage of scripture and he used it to fight against unbelief with the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, this should really encourage the faint hearted. And since Jesus confirmed this passage, every critic who attacks it and says it can't be true and it's impossible is also attacking Jesus's character. J.C. Ryle said in referring to Old Testament passages where Jesus confirmed them as being fact, said that those who are guilty of sneering at the things recorded in the Old Testament pour contempt on Jesus himself. But to claim to be a Christian, to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet call him a liar by questioning the, 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 the truth of Jonah or the factualness of Jonah is really a, a, a gross contradiction. You know, to say that I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, and say, well, you know, you really can't believe this part of the Bible. Well, then, what can you believe? Now we're, we're picking what we can believe and we can't believe. When the Bible is infallible from Genesis to Revelation. I mentioned earlier that the fish was a specially prepared fish that God had provided. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will believe what the Scripture says. You will believe what Jesus says about the Scripture. And that includes his reference to Jonah because he clearly confirmed it to be true. God provided this special fish just for Jonah. And it was in order to get Jonah back on track spiritually and to get him back on land physically. So God stepped in. And provided everything that Jonah needed using this great fish to get him back to serving God. So Jonah has now been in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now let's look at chapter 2 now, verse 1. So he's now in the belly of the fish. And it says in in verse 1 of chapter 2, then Jonah prayed. Notice, that's what it took to get Jonah to pray in this situation. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. Now, what was it that caused Jonah to pray? Well, that's what we're going to look at in the rest of our time here. We're going to look at what was the inspiration for Jonah's prayer. What was it that motivated him to pray? Well, the first thing that motivated Jonah to pray was his affliction. Where he's at right now. 
And usually our, effect, our afflictions are pretty effective in getting us to pray, in getting us to get upon our knees, in getting us to call out to God. Notice what he says in verse 2. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. And I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. Jonah was being afflicted by God for his sin. And, and, and he knew it. He knew that, that he had sinned, and he was crying out for mercy. J.R. Thompson said, Trouble is not designed to lead God's people to cry against the Lord, but unto the Lord. And many times we have our afflictions, our problems, our trials, whatever it might be, those, those tough times in life, and, and we think... And, we don't think, but many times we cry out against the Lord. Lord, why are you doing this? Can't you see what I'm going through? Don't you care? Don't you love me? But our trials, our troubles are not designed to lead us to cry against God, but to cry unto him, oh Lord, help me in my time of need. Help me to deal with what I'm going through. Teach me through it. Show me what it is you want me to learn through this. Chastisement for obedience, which is what too many of our afflictions are, wants to rescue the disobedient person and produce in them the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Again, many times our afflictions are because of our disobedience. And God chastises us. But again, God uses it to rescue the disobedient person and to produce in them, as Hebrews 12, 11 says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Righteousness comes before peace. Righteousness comes before, before peace. So if you want peace, you first have to have righteousness. And the work of chastisement is to produce righteousness, which will then bring peace. And the big reason we have so little peace in the world today is that we have so little righteousness in the world. And boy, can we attest to that. We are living in an unrighteous world. Therefore, we see why there is so much, so, such a big lack of peace. But if the peaceable fruit of righteousness, that is to be the resulting outcome of God's affliction, then we have to submit to it. Proverbs 3.11, Solomon said, Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest His correction. But you see, a lot of people, we don't respond well to God's chastening. It's like a child when, you know, they mess up and, and we catch them in, 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 in what they've done. You know, they've done something wrong, they disobeyed, and now we're going to chastise them, we're going to punish them for it. They don't respond very well. <laughs> And many times we do the same thing. We act like children and we pout. You don't love me. You're mean to me. The kind of response, that, this kind of response where we don't submit, where we don't respond well, will only bring about more chastisement. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says this in the New Living Translation. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Well, we really don't look at it many times when we're going through difficult times. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. 
So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. How many times have we prayed, oh, help me to be perfect and complete and need nothing? He says, oh, that's the kind of prayer I like. So he throws an affliction on us. Well, Lord, can't you do that in some other way? You know, this isn't what I really would, this isn't what I expected. This isn't really not what I would have asked for. We need to be careful when we pray, Lord, make me holy. Make me like Jesus. Because those are the prayers that that he wants to hear, and he will abide. He 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 will help you out. This is the attitude that we are to have toward trials. James says, consider it all joy. Now, when he says that, he's not saying, hey, enjoy the suffering, enjoy the pain, enjoy the inconvenience. Enjoy the fact that God is allowing this in your life to complete you, to make you perfect, to make you complete so that you need nothing. But because they never see God working through them, that is the trials, nor recognize the chastening hand of God in their afflictions, they never make the needed changes in their lives. But Jonah saw God and all of his troubles, and notice what he says in verse 3, For you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. He said, you, God, are the one who threw me into the water. I'm paraphrasing. You're the one who allowed all of the waves and all of the billows to, to, to pass over me. Now, Jonah didn't directly point the finger at the sailors. He didn't blame the sailors for throwing him overboard. He said, it was you, God. You cast me into the deep. All your billows and waves passed over me. It was God's billows. It was God's wave that swept over Jonah. It wasn't the sailors who did this to him. And if we would only recognize the hand of God in all of our trials and dealings in life, what a great return to God we would see in the world. God's chastisement is not meant to be just disciplinary action. It's also meant to be corrective as well. It's to, it's to bring us to, and put us back on the right track. Jonah paid attention to his affliction, as he called it. He said it was caused, you know, it, it caused him to go to God in prayer. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Jonah had wanted to get away from the presence of the Lord. And now in his affliction, he feels he's cast out of the sight of the Lord. It's funny how, we, you know, we don't want God sometimes and we, we want out of his presence. But when we are, we recognize and say, I don't like it here. Jonah didn't like where he was at. He senses the great pain of being separated from God. Can you imagine? He's, this is a temporal thing for Job. But can you imagine people in hell? That's what makes it hell. Eternal separation from God. Can you imagine how horrible that's going to be? To know I am going to be separated from God for all eternity. Jonah doesn't like it one bit. But this is what he had sown. 
He brought it upon himself. Now he's reaping the consequences. Again, as I said earlier, be careful what you ask for. He wanted to, to flee from the presence of God. I don't want to be in God's presence anymore. So here he is. He's not in God's presence, but he doesn't like it. God often chases us in the same way that we have sinned so that we can see our sin and quickly turn to repentance. You know, you've heard the saying, what goes around comes around. I think of David when he tried to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. Let me read to you because, again, this is what God, how God brought David back. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said to him, and remember, this was after David had committed his sin, he slept with Bathsheba, he killed her husband, and he tried to cover it up. So he stole this man's wife from him. David wanted her for himself. And then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan came to David and said to David, there were two men in one city. One rich and one poor. Nathan, uh, David being the rich one and, and Uriah being the poor one. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. This is David. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man, Uriah, had nothing except one little ewe lamb, Bathsheba, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb. In other words, this man, you know, again, it's this analogy that he took this man's wife. He took this poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man that David is talking about in this story. As the, David said, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then, David said, and then Nathan said to David, You're that man. See, when David saw the sin he committed done by somebody else, he got so angry and so upset. He realized what a horrible thing that man had done. And Nathan said, David, that's you. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You see, God allowed David to see his sin in somebody else. And you know, when we see it in somebody else, we are so quick to say, what a, what a bad person. What a terrible person. Adonai Bezek, he was an enemy of Israel. And when he was captured by the Israelites, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Well, he saw his evil sin in this because he had done the same thing to Israelites. He said in Judges 1-7, he said, I once had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. Remember when Peter denied the Lord three times? Jesus made Peter confess three times, Peter, do you love me? Probably for each time that, G that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? So Jesus, in a way, gave Peter a look at his own sin. And it says Peter was grieved about this repeated questioning of his love for the Lord. But you'll notice he didn't deny the Lord again. J.B. Owen said, It is useful to consider what was the cast 
It is useful to consider what it was that cast you out of God's sight in order that you may cast that out of your sight. Jonah's chastening fit his sin. And Jonah recognizes, man, I'm getting what I deserve. That's why recognizing your sin is so important for our immediate repentance and restoration. Before Jonah prayed in the belly of the, of the fish, he prayed in the belly of Sheol, verse 2 says. The belly of Sheol. The deep waters were like a grave. The word Sheol means the place of the dead. So the deep waters were like a grave to him at the bottom of the sea. Death seemed so sure. And it was the answer to that prayer in the belly of Sheol that helped to encourage Jonah to pray more in the belly of the fish. Jonah's Jonah's prayer was mostly telling about his past experience and being rescued from them. Jonah wasn't asking for anything. It was a prayer of thanksgiving and a testimony of of how God rescued him. Jonah had prayed for deliverance and he got it. Answers to our prayer should encourage us to pray more. Just like Jonah did. And verse, verse 4 shows us another reason, another uh, 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 reason why it motivated uh, Jonah to pray. He was in, you know, why he was encouraged to pray. Notice he says, I will look again toward your holy temple. There in verse 4. Then I said, I have been cast out at your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. It's because of what the temple represents. So what was it about the temple that kept Jonah from giving up and encouraging him to pray and encouraging him to pray for deliverance? It was everything that the temple represents. The offerings, the sacrifices that spoke about God's willingness to be reconciled with the sinner. It was where the mercy seat was there in the temple. It was where the blood of the sacrifices was sprinkled. The temple was a symbol of where God and man were reconciled together to one another. So that made it a place of great encouragement for Jonah and great hope for the repentant sinner. Jonah knew that he didn't deserve God's help. He felt that he was cast out of God's sight because of his sin. But he still prayed. Why? Because the temple represented God's mercy. So that gave him his encouragement that he needed to seek You know, he needed to see God in spite of his sin. The psalmist missed the blessedness of dwelling in the house of God also. In Psalm 84, 1 and 2, listen to what the psalmist said. He said, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. The psalmist, for some reason, wasn't able to make the yearly trek to the tabernacle. He said, oh, how lovely is your tabernacle. I want to be there so bad. My heart faints. It, it, it cries out. My flesh cries out for the living God. You see, and that was why. It was a beautiful place. You know, the sacrifices and everything that, that was involved there. But he said, my, fl- my flesh is crying out for the living God. It wasn't for the building. It wasn't for the furnishings. It wasn't for took place there. It was who was there. He cried out because he wanted to be in the presence of the living God. He wasn't missing the ritual. He wasn't missing the songs. He was missing the conscious presence of the living God. Today, we have a much better temple than the one in the Old Testament times in Jerusalem to encourage us to pray, even though we're not worthy. In the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus 
the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says 13 times he uses that to, to talk about Jesus. Jesus is better in 13, at least 13 ways that he writes. So if the Old Testament temple brought hope to the hopeless, how much more will Jesus bring hope and help to those who sense and know their great unworthiness? Because Jesus is so much better than the Old Testament temple. No matter how great our sin is, we can always look to Jesus to find hope. And as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Not just certain sins, all sin. If we are honest and, and repentant and we confess it. Another stimulator, uh, motivator, uh, motivation to pray was what he said in verse 7. Notice. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. When we think about the Lord, man, we'll be encouraged to pray because of what God is and what he has told us, what he said to us. And people who don't think about God or who, they, who keep God out of their, their thoughts and their mind, they aren't praying people. And thankfully for Jonah, he didn't forget God. Notice in verse 7, he said, he said, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. He didn't forget God. You know, the real, there's a real danger in forgetting the Lord. But thankfully, Jonah didn't forget God. And when he did remember God, it inspired him to pray. Again, there's a real danger in forgetting the Lord. Moses warned Israel about forgetting the Lord. In Deuteronomy 6.12, he said, Beware lest you forget the Lord. This forgetting of God, this wasn't just a, a natural memory loss, kind of like just, well, you know, I just, you know, I'm old and I, and I happen to forget. This wasn't a natural memory loss. It was a spiritually closed door that shut out God, that shuts out God from a person's life. It's the worst kind of forgetfulness. Because it not only hinders our praying, it also stops us from being obedient to his word. It's not only, it not only puts us in great trouble, but you know what? It doesn't provide a way out of that trouble. That's why we need to do everything we can to keep from forgetting the Lord. We need to practice reading his word every day and attending worship services regularly. Regularly, We need to remember there's a tremendous value in being conscious of God being aware of God, so that we need to do whatever it takes to practice it all the time. Jonah, for sure, had tremendous problems. But his remembrance of God kept him from total despair, and it motivated him to a victorious prayer. And you know what? It will do the same for us. In Jonah's prayer from the fish's belly, Jonah describes two traumatic experiences. The first one, he describes a drowning experience. And secondly, a resurrection experience. Now, some, be, some believe that Jonah's drowning experience is literal. That he literally died in the belly of the whale and literally resurrected. Others say it was figurative. The drowning experience that Jonah described happened right after the sailors threw him overboard. And verses 3 through 6 graphically describe a drowning situation. Now I'm going to read some verses uh, from 3 through 6. 
but just covering the specific ones. And the flood surrounded me, Jonah said. All your billows and waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings. That means to the, the, the moorings of the mountains. Went down to the very bottom of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever, yet you have brought up my life from the pit or the grave, O Lord my God. Jonah here is describing a man who had little to no chance of surviving what had happened to him. He said in verses 3 through 6, The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The waters of the, of the sea totally surrounded him, reaching even into his soul so that it seemed like, man, I'm done. I, I, I'm, I'm not getting out of this. I'm going to die here. It's all over. The bottomless waters of the ocean completely surrounded him, even to the depths of his soul. He said, weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, that is, to the very bottom of the mountains. Seagrass or seaweed, which grows at the bottom of the sea, he says it was wrapped around my head so that he, he had sunk to the very bottom, taking him down to the bottom of the mountains. And then he said, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. When Jonah sank into the deep, the earth shut its bars behind him. Now, <clears throat> the bars is also bolts. The figure of bolts of the earth that were shut behind Jonah is a picture to shut the door behind a person. We see that in Genesis 7, 16, 2 Kings 4, uh, verses 4 through 5 and verse 33 and Isaiah 26, 20. It's the idea of bolts and doors. It's the idea of a door being shut and then bolted. And he says the ocean, it like shut his doors, shut the doors on his life and it was bolted and couldn't be opened up again. The bolts and the doors of the ocean closing up on Jonah. When Jonah had <clears throat> sunk to the bottom of the sea, he's saying it shut or bolted against me. Uh, it shut. It, 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 uh, shut and bolted against my way back to the earth, back to land. Look at verse 6 now. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Here's a picture of the resurrection. Job just, uh, Jonah describes his resurrection experience here. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever, yet you have brought up my life from the pit. The word pit means grave. This is describing resurrection. And these are the same words that Jesus spoke when he was talking about his resurrection in Psalm 16.10 and Acts 2.27. In spite of Jonah's overwhelming difficulties, he was steadfast, man. He didn't give up in pursuing his deliverance. And here's the lesson here. Learn from Jonah. To never surrender our moral character to the stress of the circumstances. In other words, we, we are Christians. You know, we're, we're followers of Christ and we have his character. But never give up that character because of the stress of the things that we're going through. And many times people do that. You know, they, they give up on the Lord. They give up on Christianity. They're not going to go to church anywhere. I'm not going to read anymore because of their circumstances. Never give up your moral character no matter how difficult your circumstances might get. Resist the circumstances. Be diligent to pray to God. See, Jonah was in such a place 
where he felt he was just surrounded, he was down. He said that, that you know, it, that he, you know, he felt it's all over. He was in such a place. The circumstances were so dire. It was a place where, to, where he could just give up, give in to his despair, but he didn't. He didn't let his circumstances stop him from praying, no matter how terrible they were. This is the work of faith. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says, For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith in Jesus Christ is what overcomes what appears to be the impossible. And it is so easy to give up when the circumstances become so difficult, so hard, so discouraging. In closing, if our troubles start to pile up, and sometimes they do wave after wave, like Jonah was saying, the waves and the billows are washing over me. Sometimes they say, Lord, you know, give me a break. You know, just let the, the trial stop for a minute. But if they start to pile up, and we quit praying, it's because we have little faith. Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can remove mountains. Jonah could have done other things and pray, and a lot of people do other things and pray. Many times it will be their last resort. When men get into tough situations, they often give up in hopelessness or they, 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 they plan to do something else. Some will get drunk, some will turn to drugs to help them escape, to get through their circumstances. But all of those substitutes to prayer will only make the problems worse. Faith is the only successful answer to our problems, no matter what they are. I mean, we may be so far down like Jonah was. But think of it. If Jonah was able to be delivered, so can we if we'll just simply cling steadfastly to God. Father, thank you so much for, for Jonah, Father, for this, this little book, God, tucked away at the end of the Old Testament, Father. Powerful, needful, encouraging. So many lessons we can learn, God. Father, help us to never give up, to never give in, but to continue moving forward, God. And Lord, let us be like Jonah, looking to the temple, looking into the conscious presence of the living God. That's where our hope lies. Not in any substitutes, Father. There's nothing that can take the place of our God. He's almighty. He's the creator of heaven and earth and of all mankind. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.